0: In All Things Are Possible, Lev Shestov is going to talk about philosophy at many different points, which makes good sense because he is himself a philosopher, but as a second generation existentialist philosopher, somebody who sees the continuities between the thought of what we can call the first generation, including Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, who he writes about very early, and then Kierkegaard, who he discovers later, and then other figures as well. He is going to have a particular notion of what philosophy could be capable of and a critique and even rejection of what philosophy typically is. And one good place to start with this, although you could read around within his his work, is chapter 74 of part one, where he says, philosophy has always loved to occupy the position of a servant. In the Middle Ages, she was the Ankilla Theologia, which is the handmaid of theology, as we often say. Nowadays, she waits on science. In the present age, a lot of philosophers subordinate philosophy to science and then wait for science to reveal truth to them. And then at the same time, Shestov is noting a little bit of inconsistency or perhaps even hypocrisy here, she calls herself the science of the sciences. and. You might say, okay, well, the, the goal then is to figure out what is the relationship between the disciplines. And you notice that it's philosophy or sociology or psychology or other disciplines that's doing philosophy that typically wants to figure out how do all these connect with and subordinate and, and superordinate with each other. And Shustoff would would say, listen, this is part of the problem. This is not really what we want to be doing. You don't have to take your cues from some other discipline. You can engage in philosophy by itself. Philosophy doesn't have to tell everybody else where they fit and what they do, which they don't really listen to anyway. They go on just find whether philosophy tells them that this is their proper object or not. Uh, Another example of this is in what he comes right out and labels as armchair philosophy in part two chapter 13 this is actually entitled four walls the walls of one's study and he says armchair philosophy is being condemned rightly an armchair thinker is busy deciding everything that's taking place in the world his chief business is to select his statement so that there's no internal contradiction this will give an appearance of truth and so that's what the task really is there and he says this work leads to very poor results why versimilitudes of truth or not truth. What is a versimilitude? An appearance of truth. Something that has truthiness to use a term that's made its way into the English vocabulary in the last 10 or so years. And he says that a person who undertakes to talk of everything probably knows nothing. An armchair philosopher sees nothing but those four walls. And yet of these precisely, they don't choose to speak. They don't realize their own contingent situation. They don't realize the limitations on their understanding of the world and of all the possible experiences that they're generalizing about. So that's something that we want to avoid as well. He also has a very funny quip here in chapter 21 about philosophy being in the hands of the professors. And if you read later on in part one, you'll see him actually considering things coming out of popular textbooks at the time and saying, look at this stuff that's going on, right? And he's not totally dismissing it, but he is revealing where it's pretense to universality and finally getting at everything that is important. The ultimate truths has really been ineffectual. So in the, the chapter where he's talking about logical thinking and that its relation to philosophy is certainly a contentious one, he tells us it's difficult given sedentary habits of life to be a good philosopher. You need to actually go around and have experiences in the world. He says, the fact that the fate of philosophy has ever lain in the hands of professors can only be explained by the reluctance of the envious gods to give omniscience to mortals Well stay-at-home persons are searching for truth, the apple will stay on the tree. So what is he talking about there? It's possible for a philosophy professor to have a wide range of experience and to use resources arising in academic philosophy to go beyond just, you know, there four walls, but it often doesn't happen. And when you think what passes for philosophy in so many places, and how detached it is from I don't want to say the history of philosophy because Shestoff actually says, listen, a big problem that we've got right now is people aren't doing any original work. They're just talking about the history of philosophy, but he does recommend studying history for a very good reason. He tells us that if we actually look at history, we're going to be disabused of, here we go, to escape from the grasp of contemporary ruling ideas. One should study history. The lives of other men in other lands and other ages teach us to realize our eternal laws and infallible ideas are just a Abortions take a step further imagine mankind living any elsewhere than this on this earth and all our terrestrial eternalities lose their charm. By studying other people and not just studying them so you can figure out what pigeonhole to put them in, you can come to some sense of the the contingency and groundlessness of so much of our thinking and our philosophizing. So philosophy in the hands of professors, not really philosophy in, in, in a lot of respects at all. It's what takes the space that should be occupied by genuine philosophy. He also talks about the aiming for spiritual serenity. And this is in Part one, chapter 103 says, the summit of human existence say the philosophers, obviously not all philosophers, but plenty of them, is spiritual serenity. But in that case, animals should be our ideal. In the matter of imperturbability, they leave nothing to be desired. Look at a grazing sheep or a cow. They don't worry about any of that sort of thing. The pasture is fine for them. And so if that's our goal, then he thinks we're missing something. We're, We're missing out on something. So what does he put forward as if we want to call it an ideal, if not a universally binding one, of what the philosopher ought to be doing. So a great example is what he calls not walking the path of gemein Gültigkeit. Here he's making fun of the Germans, says the germans always try to get at allgemein Gültigkeit, which means universal validity right Gültigkeit is validity and allgemein universal so something that would be binding on everybody something that would apply in every single case and he says if the problem of knowledge is to fathom all the depths of actual life then experience is uninteresting or at least has a limit of interest it's necessary to know what nobody yet knows. And he, so he says, we've got, it's, it's not Robert Frost, two paths diverging in a wood. Rather, it's like there's some paths of algamine Gultikite. And then it's not even going to be a path necessarily. It might just be where the deer have run. And you're like, I think there's a path there. Let me go check this out. You know, you go off on your own, or maybe you've got a machete and you blaze a trail. So he says, we, we must walk not on the common road of allgemein Gultikite, but on new tracks which have never yet seen human feet. And it could be that we don't have to pick tracks that have never seen human feet. It could be that we pick tracks that have been there and the road was abandoned and people allowed things to grow over it and you can't quite tell, but there actually is a road there. But it's not a road of universal validity. It's a road that somebody else traversed and we could check it out. We could try it out. We could say, I'm actually gonna read Cicero and see if there's anything there. And everyone else is like, why are you reading that old book? That's not what we're doing these days, right? That's not what philosophy is. That's not even for philosophy departments. That's for classics departments. And you're like, well, I'm gonna read it anyway. And so, so much of this comes down to our choice to not simply go along the path that everybody else is telling us to go along that's valid for everybody, or that we want to be valid for everybody. And the very first chapter of the very first part has this wonderful metaphor. Again, using a path or road or street as an image. He says, the obscure streets of life do not offer the conveniences of the central thoroughfares. No electric light, no gas, not even a kerosene lamp bracket. So they're not illuminated, right? There are no pavements. The traveler has to fumble his way in the dark. If he needs a light, he must wait for a thunderbolt or else primitive wise knock a spark out of a stone. In a glimpse will appear unfamiliar outlines and then what he has taken in. He must try to remember, no matter whether the impression was right or false because he will not easily get another light unless he ram his head against the wall and see sparks that way. What can a wretched pedestrian gather under such circumstances? And he says, how can we expect a clear account from him whose curiosity led him to grope his way among the outskirts of life? Why should we try to compare his records with those of the travelers through brilliant streets? So much of human experience has been homogenized, has been standardized, is this allgemein gultikei. But where the real action is, oftentimes is off the not just beaten, but paved and well-lit track. So that's a a very important thing to keep in mind. He also tells us to stop treating these old, you know, well-established truths with the respect that everyone expects them to be given. He's got a great discussion here. And he says, the best way of getting rid of tedious, played out truths, is stop paying them this tribute. Treat them with a touch of easy familiarity and derision. He says that Dostoevsky did this. And he says, to do this will alone achieve you much more than many brilliant arguments would do. While you still contest a certain truth, you still believe in it, and this even the least penetrating individual will perceive. But if you favor it with no serious attention and only throw out a scornful remark now and then, the result is different. You're no longer afraid of it. You're no longer respecting it. And this sets people thinking, he concludes. So that's an interesting tactic. He also suggests that instead of this universal validity, this is uh, in, in chapter 40 towards the end of part two, that we, in fact, he, he says, this is in a section called general rules. And he says, people go to philosophers for general principles and philosophers get sucked into this activity because they're human. They're kept busy supplying the market with general principles. And he says, now, do we really need general principles? Is that really where the action is is that what we ought to be supplying and he says that what we ought to be thinking about instead of just simply trying to give everybody universally binding judgments we should actually here we go there are no all binding universal judgments let us manage let us manage our lives with non-binding non-universal ones And he has got a little jibe there again about academic philosophers. Only professors are gonna suffer for that because that's how we actually do get by in life. We may in fact have things that we think are universal. And then there's always exceptions. The, The world is complicated. So that's an interesting one. We start to get into some, some more, you might say skeptical or cynical ideas when we get to the point where he says that philosophy must have nothing in common with logic, which seems to be a rather extreme statement. It needs to be contextualized by another statement where he says, well, we don't wanna throw logic out altogether. That would be silly and extravagant, but we certainly don't want logic to be dictating to us how we need to do things. And he says, Philosophy must have nothing in common with logic, why? Philosophy is an art which aims at breaking the logical continuity of argument and bringing the human being out on the shoreless sea of imagination, the fantastic tides where everything is possible and impossible. So philosophy shouldn't just be about narrowing and restricting our capacities. It should be about opening up our imagination to possibilities, not necessarily saying, well, they're actual, because we've imagined them, that would be silly. That would be insanity, right? But we have to acknowledge where things are much more open than we typically treat them as. He also has this really funny discussion about deceiving ourselves and letting everybody deceive themselves in their own way. Now, he, he thinks of the philosopher as, in some sense, deceiving themselves. He says philosophers love to call their utterances truths, since in that guise, they become binding on us all, right? They have a universal validity. But each philosopher invents his own truths. So these aren't really universally binding. They're coming out of what the philosophers preoccupied with. They're coming out of their context. They're coming out of their existential station in life. And so he goes on and he says, here's what I'm going to suggest for you. Instead of asking your pupils to deceive themselves in the way that they show and reserving for yourself the option of deceiving yourself in your own way, Let everybody deceive themselves just as they like. If you know that the reason why you're attracted to, say, virtue ethics is because there's something in you that responds to that, you don't have to expect everybody else to respond to that. It doesn't have to be a universally binding theory that everybody covers. And if you don't fit into it, you're, you know, cast down among the swine or whatever it is like that. Live and let live you don't necessarily have to think that you've got your finger on the pulse of the truth with a capital T in order to be able to get by in life and do philosophy. Finally, he also recommends rejecting the services of reason. And, and, and somebody who wants to hold on to Shestov as being sort of a moderate person in this respect could have some troubles with this. He says that The only way to guard against positivism is to not fear any absurdities, whether rational or metaphysically, and systematically to reject all the services of reason. Such behavior has been known in philosophy. And and he talks about Schopenhauer and Nietzsche as examples of this. He also talks about credo quia absurdum, which Tertullian says, and he says this comes from the Middle Ages. And he says that these present noble examples of indifference to logic and common sense. And then he says, I make bold to recommend it. So now in recommending it, is he recommending that we totally get rid of logic and common sense? No, no, he's again, going to be somewhat realistic about this, but he is saying don't allow those things to be binding on you as a philosopher and don't impose them simply on everybody else and say, you must do this or you can't be studying or understanding philosophy. The last bit of advice that he provides is one that he gives not just to philosophers but to writers in general. And it's where he talks about logic and uh, morality and science as being police agents. And so I think this is actually valuable for philosophers. And it gives you some idea of what he wants to do with reasoning. He says that the task of a writer is to go forward and share their impressions with the reader. This would apply just as much to philosophers. Not to provide universally binding laws for everybody and he says he's not obliged to prove anything but because every step of his progress every movement is dogged by those police agents morality science logic and so forth he needs to have ready some sort of argument with which to frustrate them you don't have to worry too much about the quality of the argument don't worry about being inwardly right it's enough if the reasoning which comes handiest will succeed in occupying those guardians of the verbal highways whose intention it is to obstruct his passage so you can say that you're doing things in the traditional way. Cause that throws these dogs a bone and keeps them occupied. Then you can get on with your real job, which is to philosophize within your life and make sense of things and be okay with the fact that we probably are not going to get to ultimate truths, but we can at least make our way towards them and that you're going to have to take unknown paths from time to time. And that it might be a lonely process. You can do all that while morality, logic, and science are over there gnawing on the stuff that you've thrown them, on the, the bone or the meat of the, of the rational argumentation. And so philosophy has a task for Shestov. It's one that he doesn't say that everybody has to follow. He'd be inconsistent if he insisted that all of us must do philosophy in Shestov's own way. You know, let everyone find their own way. But if he happens to have brought us any light or help along the way we could certainly make use of it special thanks to all of my patreon supporters for making this podcast possible you can find me on twitter at philosopher 70 on youtube at the gregory b sadler channel and on facebook on the gregory b sadler page once again to support my work go to patreon.com sadler above all Keep studying these great philosophical works.